Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Will. Welcome to the show. Hey, what's going on, Brendan? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for doing this with me. Really appreciate you taking time out of your day to chat. I'm looking forward to picking your brain and sharing your knowledge with the rest of our founders. So maybe before we dive in, would you mind just sharing a little bit about you, your background, your company, and what you're up to these days? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am the founder of a company called Stack, and Stack is the first cryptocurrency exchange in the United States to be authorized for under 18-year-olds. Um, and so the next question I usually get is, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> um, and so any product that, any financial product that's offered to an under 18-year-old needs to have something called a UTMA license. And that is in brokerage, like in stock or in banking, um, often called a custodial account. And most parents set them up for their children. They, you know, give them a mutual fund or they give them their first debit card when they're young. Um, and then it's something that can grow and has some tax benefits. No one had created that for crypto yet. And so that was uh, sort of the trailblazing path that we've been on for the past uh, two years. Nice. And other than moving house <laughs> how has your week been anything keeping you up at night well we uh, we're going live um literally right now our our app is going live on android and on um, ios and so that's very exciting but it's also um you know draining going back and forth with the uh, apple store and and doing all those things um and then i'm also we have our first child coming um in september so a lot of life change happening at one time <laughs> like you, you don't have enough to do already. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, before we dive in, keeping with tradition, I love to ask my guests one fun fact about themselves. So if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing that comes to mind is I very, maybe secretly, I'm a big history buff. I love to, um, whether it's like US history, I also love World War II history. Um, and read a lot of books about it, watch a lot of documentaries about it. Um, so it's sort of my side hustle, if you will, <laughs> that I like to do um, a lot of fun stuff with. So how have your history skills enabled your strategic thinking around this current recession that we're going through? Is there anything there that you're doing differently? Any thoughts around that? I would be curious to pick your brain. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, the, the world is just a big loop in some ways, you know, I mean, technology changes and, um, and societies change, but the stories I feel like, you know, are very repeatable and they happen very often. Um, and so even if we're in the metaverse, you know, with our VR goggles on, you know, buying Bitcoin, <laughs> buying, you know, like JPEGs of cats, um, there's still a lot of relatability, I think, in, in the stories of history. 
So when it comes to things like the recession, um, I mean, the, this recession in crypto, they feel like they happen um, every three or four years. And depending on how long you've been in crypto, you've probably seen at least a few of these. Um, I think I've been around for five of them since I started investing personally. And so you just kind of get used to it. Um, it's a high volatility world. And so that means that there are, you know, more bull and bear markets than the classic market. Um, and then if you compare it to something like the stock market, look at the stock market in its earlier days. Um, it was much more volatile. There were some significant downturns. There were some significant upturns. Um, and then it sort of settled out over time as it became more mainstream, as there became more institutional players, as you know, investment products were built for the stock market. And so I think we'll see that continue to happen. Um, I fully expect crypto to reach another all-time high in the next two to three years. Um, but the road to there, I think there needs to be a few things that have to happen. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to kind of see it play out. And in terms of like your company's strategy around the recession, are you taking the advice of like continue as normal, just throw more caution to the wind? A lot of advice that I've been hearing out there is now's the time to actually double down, be more creative, because that can be your opportunity to make an impact because like 90% of the companies are holding back. So I'm just curious, you know, what's your company's strategy during the recession? Has anything changed? I think that every founder um, is built for things like a recession in a weird way. You know, it's um, being a founder is a little bit of a masochistic experience, no matter which way you look at it. Um, you know, pain and you know how to go through hard times and um, uh, great founders are born out of struggle and have a lot of resilience. And so something like a recession, there is no coincidence that you see every single recession, you know, 20 plus billion dollar companies born out of that recession. Um, and that's because the, the great companies, the great builders do push through and they find a way to um, create value. They find a way to create something for their customers. Um, I think personally, when you think about Stack and what we're building, we are building an approachability layer for crypto. Um, we're not some deep L1. We're not even an L2 that's trying to add some sort of utility to the blockchain. We are an approachability layer on top of all that that says, can we make it really easy and really simple um, and somewhat educational for a young user to get involved? Because we know that forming that habit by just putting $20 in Bitcoin when you're 15, 16 years old means that when you have $2,000 or $10,000 or $100,000, you are much more likely to be equipped to put your money in good places. Um, and so that's that's really what we're after. I mean, Acorns was founded right after the 2008 financial crisis. They were an approachability layer for retail investors in the stock market. And so I think, you know, we see ourselves um, in a lot of that way, just trying to build something that makes it a little bit more approachable that makes it easy for people to get involved. What advice would you give to other founders during a recession that's slightly adjacent to your vertical? Yeah, I mean, well, I'll, I'll first I'll raise the flag that like I certainly don't have um, the answers. I graduated college right during the last recession. And so in some ways, this is like um, I, I entered the job market right after, you know, the 2008 financial crisis. This is really my first one being a business leader. Um, and so... 
Um, we only as human beings usually get two to three recessions in our entire career. And so what you do with them, I think can be incredibly powerful. They can be opportunities, um, for founders in particular, you know, showing resilience. Um, I also think as a founder during a big bull market, you are often forced into almost uncomfortable growth where everyone wants you to pour fuel on the fire. Um, and I think there is a really cool opportunity to just be a great product, achieve product market fit and really focus in on the core parts of your product that matter. Um, don't get too crazy with product features. Don't get too crazy with, you know, deep, deep marketing budgets. I think it's build for the people that are there because they absolutely love what you're doing. Are you, are you ready to jump into the quote unquote rapid fire questions? I know I, I call them rapid fire, but you can take your time. You don't have to, <laughs> um, blitz <laughs> through them, but I'll hit you with the first one. I love it. So, so what was your sort of biggest aha moment as a founder? And it could be on any topics such as fundraising, sales, marketing, hiring, any one of those functions. I think every founder is a generalist um, if they're doing a zero to one business. And so if you are a founder, whether it's, you know, of a very newly minted company that hasn't raised any money or a small amount of angel capital or something, all the way to maybe like Series C or D even, I think as a founder at each stage of founding a company, and I've definitely seen this in like sort of our three distinct phases of the business so far, you're required to do a very different set of skills. Um, when you're zero to one truly, and you're just trying to get off the ground, it's like, how do you get an investor to believe in your vision and to believe in you? Um, and then how do you really try to plug every single hole on the boat and hire maybe two to three people to really do the things that, you know, you do not do well. And that's about self-awareness. Then I think there's these stages. Um, the second stage of founding our company was really about, making sure that we were set for the long term, that we had leaders that really believed in the vision, that we were really committed to the mission at a 30,000 foot level, and that we would never pivot from that, even if our product pivoted. Um, and then I think this last stage is a lot more about um, user experience, being obsessed with our customers, um, you know, listening to them at all times, and almost even finding ways to build with them. Um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll hopefully I'll have another version of this in the next chapter, but, um, I think just recognizing that every stage requires something different of you as a founder. It rings a bell of like the a Anderson Harvitz book, the hard thing about hard things. Every literally my favorite book. book. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's literally my favorite book. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. That's... The, the, the struggle, the chapter about the struggle is one of my favorite chapters of any book ever. So before we continue, just to help me tailor and focus my questions, what would you say is your superpower as a founder? Is it like marketing, sales, hi hiring, product, operations? I would say so in, fin in, I've been in fintech my whole career. And so I definitely have a lot of domain expertise. Um, and that carries itself to a few different parts of the business. There is always compliance and legal that unfortunately in the financial world, you have to know and you have to know well. 
And it can be a really big advantage if you know where to play, how to set things up thoughtfully, um, how to set things up for the long term, and then also take some risks, right? Take some calculated risks that give you an edge as a startup. Um, and then I think product is definitely another advantage. I mean, I've been in finance and even more specifically teen finance for, um, you know, a long enough time to know what works, to know that you're winning two distinct customers, you're winning parents and you're winning teenagers. Um, and so that's kind of a unique part of being in this niche of finance. Um, beyond that, I am a true generalist. I do my best when I get to live at 30,000 feet. Um, you know, I know enough about digital marketing or about growth tactics or about business development or a lot of other things to be dangerous. Um, but I should not be the one that's doing day-to-day ops in most of them. And that self-awareness I think is really helpful because it helps you relinquish control of things that you know you're not gonna um, be the best at. Yeah, my favorite saying is hire people smarter than you. And if you're yeah. the smartest person in the room, go find another room. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> so I, I'm going to let you choose the, the, the function based on my question. I won't pigeonhole you. <laughs> okay. So the, my next question is, what's the biggest misconception when it comes to whatever function that you would like to share? I'll choose product. And I think the biggest misconception about product that exists is people get really obsessed with product features. Um, and I think that that gets away from the core importance of building a great product. A great product is frictionless. Uh, the example that I always use is TikTok. Um, you know, a lot of my user base is using TikTok every single day for hours a day. And what TikTok does so incredibly well is it does the number one and number two thing that it wants you to do, and it does it without you taking any actions. You open the app and it's already playing a video and you can swipe whether you like the video or you don't, and it helps their algorithm. And so that is at its simplest core, that is what TikTok is. It is an algorithm that plays videos. Um, And that algorithm gets better the more you consume content and the more you say, I like this or I don't like this. And I think really, really great products do that. They try to win the first 10 seconds that you use them. And sometimes people get obsessed with building something that has 20 different product features. Um, And it has all of these different verticals that it's trying to operate in and give value in. And what that ends up losing focus on is the one reason that people are really there. And so for our app, um, you know, to illustrate this and kind of drive it home, our app is just has to be the best place for a 15 year old to go buy Bitcoin, right? And if we can just do that, if we can win 10 seconds of the average teenager's day, which is, you know, especially in today's world, their day is jam-packed. They have very um, strict schedules. They have a million apps on their phone. They have a million people trying to tell them what to do and how to do it. And so we just need to win that one moment. And if we can do it really, really effectively, then I think our product has met what it's supposed to do. And maybe we can innovate at some point later and add some extra value to that once people are really familiar with our product. But in the early days, being hyper-focused on that, I think is a um, underachieved thing in product world. I I love that answer. What pitfalls or failures, again, any topic of your choice, would you like to share so that others can avoid making the same mistake? Well, the one that I know founders think the most about is fundraising. 
<laughs> and I think it's the easiest thing to let your LinkedIn feed or whatever you're looking at give you a lot of false information, which is that when you're a founder, there is a group of founders that just very easily raise $100 million on a billion-dollar valuation, and they do it in a second, right? And that's just so far from the truth. Um, I feel like over my time of talking with a lot of founders, and I'm sure, Brendan, you've talked to a million more than me, there is this power of understanding the hardship of just the founder journey, right? Understanding that in the earliest days of Mark Zuckerberg raising money for Facebook, it was brutal, right? Nobody listened to him. Nobody cared about what he was doing. Um, and so I think there is this inertia that you have to break through. Um, it's a numbers game. You're going to get told no a million times. And there is a lot of being a founder when it comes to raising capital. If your job as a founder is put money in the bank, hire amazing people, keep the vision on lock. Those three things, I think, are probably the top three. Putting money in the bank and fundraising is a numbers game. And it is breaking through inertia. And it is a lot of courage and bravery and resilience. And I don't think enough people understand that. I had two um, really great founder friends that started companies within five days of when I incorporated our company. And both of them are out of business. Um, and it's a really powerful reminder that, you know, a lot of startup journeys don't work out, you know, and we still have a long way to go to go achieve any version of success. And to do it, I know that one of my biggest jobs as a founder is having so much resilience that I constantly get capital in the bank. And that's just part of the game. And you need to find people that resonate with your story and people that want to you know, give you a dollar to go create hopefully $2 or $10 or $100. Um, and so that's that's just part of the dating process of fundraising, if you will. Be sticking to this for a few more seconds. What would you say was the most impactful tactic or strategy or information that helped you raise your round of funding or rounds of funding? What is there something there that you think every founder should know or something that you discovered that others may not be aware of? I think there's, um, there's, there's definitely a journey to it. One is getting, so I asked four of my old bosses to invest in stack. And once I could actually take that story to other investors, they knew that the people that knew me best we're actually taking their money and putting it into the company. And so I think that's a really underrated and powerful story um, wherever you bring it. And then I'd say number two, like cheat code wise, is have a lot of empathy with venture capitalists in general, um, if that's who you're raising from. Know how they work. Know what they need to get out of it. I think I run our conversations from a fundraising standpoint so differently than I did a year ago. And that's because I empathize with them more. I ask them a lot of questions. You know, I um, am inquisitive about what they want to get out of this. What does a good investment in stack look like for them? Because that's their goal. My goal is to go build a great company, but their goal is to go take a bunch of, you know, wealthy people's money, put it in the right place and go have a really high rate of return on it. And so if I can help them do that by building a great company, I think that's where, you know, there's a lot of unification. That, that's great advice. I've heard a lot of feedback that it's hard to find the good investors from the bad ones. <laughs> so I don't know if it's just a numbers game or are there 
red flags or are there places or networks that founders should look for anything that you can share on that front? The best advice from a venture capitalist that I've maybe ever gotten was don't do a bunch of cold outreach to venture capitalists. That's not an effective way to raise money. Create a lot of amazing ways to generate inbound interest, meaning venture capitalists reaching out to you because they've looked at your website, they've looked at your deck. And I think the best ways to do that, I mean, accelerators are a good way to do it, but they also... Um, take a lot of equity. And so that'll sit on your cap table forever and you can never go back on that. Um, there are so many like incubator type models that don't take equity, non-dilutive ways to get your company out there. Um, there are hackathons. There's times when you think as a business owner, I'm above hackathons. I'm above, you know, pitching at these pitch events, but you know, they will return equity. Um, I've, you know, I literally raised our seed round and found our lead investor because of pitching at a pitch event. Um, and so if you really force yourself to find yourself in the right communities, investors will come to you. I didn't think about accelerators being a good source of seed round investment. That's awesome. Okay. And can you share a recent success with other founders that you think would inspire them? Hmm. We had two critical hires in the last four months. And I think for a long time in the early days of building our company, my company, there was a lot of um, unsuccessful long-term relationships. And, you know, I did a lot of contract to hire to kind of vet people and see if the relationship was worth it. And also if they enjoyed working with me and for our company. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of patience to finding the right person. Unfortunately, it is a dating process. You can't, you know, propose on the first date. Um, and then I think there's also a part of it that you need to achieve as a founder, as an early, especially if you're a solo founder, a certain level of success for anyone to want to follow you. And so um, there's a there's a saying out there that talent follows success, not the other way around. And it's so true um, because really good talent, the talent that you want, the A tier talent to go build a great company only comes to you once you've done something really cool. Um, and so you need to find it in yourself to get to that first milestone, to get to that first early shade of success so that someone believes in what you're doing and that you're going to go do something really cool. Yeah, I totally agree. Do, do you have some examples of early stage success and what would be enough to get your first major hires that will really make an impact from either from your experience or from others what are some milestones that you think would hold enough water or and weight to get those impactful first hires on board i think it's it might sound silly but it's it really does come down to fundraising um these two hires that we got one was another founder and she was a founder of a really similar company and she pitched at the same pitch event um, and I won the pitch event and she contacted me after and said, I love what you're building. I've been having trouble raising money. Um, and I think that you have a lot of the skills that I don't have. And I think I have a lot of skills that you don't have. And I think we could go build something amazing together. And she has been, you know, one of our best hire, probably our best hire to date. Um, and then the other gal, she came to me through one of our investors. One of our investors runs a really big talent agency up here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and that talent agency, the, the woman that owns it, 
her confidence in me in the business, I think was really pivotal in um, all the different offers that this person was looking at. I mean, you know, offers at Amazon and a lot of really great big companies um, versus this tiny startup, you know, with five people. Um, She knew that she was taking a risk, but I think being able to successfully fundraise, get investors that really believe in you, talent then can follow. Awesome. I love it. (laughs) Uh, Last question. What has been your greatest challenge to date? And if you solved it, how did you do it? Oh my gosh. I think (laughs) the the biggest challenge um, is loving your job. (laughs) And that might sound silly, but I, I love my job. I, I really do. I've never loved my job like I love my job now. I've had a lot of jobs. Um, you know, I've worked in corporate America um, and had the job that like checked all the the boxes for my parents so that my mom could brag at brunch with their friend um, and do all those things. And I was miserable. Um, I've had jobs at younger startups, um, but I didn't have enough autonomy and control to really influence things. This job is different. I love it because it's, you know, a vision that I get to see the impact of every day. I build from scratch. Um, But loving your job is a double-edged sword. It means that you, on a Saturday when it's nice and sunny outside and my wife wants to go for a walk, I can sit in front of my computer and, you know, fire out a few product updates. And the reality is you need to be able to turn that off to be the most effective version of yourself. You need to have balance Um, and you also need to know that you're not always right, that everything that you're doing should be challenged, that you need to celebrate other people's views in a room so that, you know, you get to a, um, more comprehensive perspective about the decisions that you're making. And so all those things come from loving your job too much. Um, and I think you need to always be questioning what is the right balance? How do I celebrate all those voices? How do I celebrate balance? How do I, as a leader, exemplify the right things to make our business run as, as effectively as possible? It's a great answer. So I think we have time for one more bonus question. <laughs> um, what advice or insight would you give to other founders on any topic of your choice? Well, Looking back to, I'll kind of qualify this to the earliest stage of founders. Um, And I'll say as a founder, you're always looking to founders that are like, you know, one step ahead of where you are. I'm looking to them all the time. And what are they doing that I can, you know, exemplify and do myself? You're looking to peers who are going through the exact same thing as you at the same time. And those are just people that you commiserate with. And then you're probably at some level um, trying to help founders that are in one stage before you get to the next stage and go through it. Um, and so my advice would be to that last group that's, you know, sort of finding that first pre-revenue, maybe pre-product, um, early fundraising, getting off the ground, hiring the first few employees. Um, my advice to them is that having the knowledge that progress is born in the depths, that resilience in this game is how you break through that first chapter. Um, it is freaking hard. <laughs> there is no two ways about it. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life, truly. Um, and there are moments that I looked at my computer and I was like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> and I think every founder has been there. I think, um, you know, breaking through that inertia and really believing in what you're doing, even when venture capitalists tell you that they don't believe in it, that the market isn't big enough, that your product sucks, that you don't have the right team, that 
all these other things. Um, if you can break through that first level, it's what just gets you to the next chapter. Um, and so know that everybody's been there, find good friends to talk through and go through that moment with, and know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and things will get better. And that's some sage advice. So basically never give up until the fat lady sings, as they say. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time. And this has been a great informative session. And I'm sure our listeners will get a lot of value out of it. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap up here today? No, loved um, being on um, and every, anybody that's listening, feel free to reach out to me on, on LinkedIn. It's probably the best place to, to reach me, Will Rush. Um, and then you can always check out our product if you happen to be a parent of a teen or a teen um, at tristack.io, T-R-Y-S-T-A-C-K.io. I'll, I'll definitely keep it in mind for myself too. <laughs> and I was just about to say like, yeah, where's the best place for folks to connect with you? So yeah, LinkedIn. And hopefully for our listeners, if any of you are in the founder pack, hopefully Will will come join us there too. You can connect with him in the Definitely. founder pack in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Brennan. It was great. Yeah, likewise, Will. It was a pleasure. Thank you for doing this with me. Cheers. All right, see you next time, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack Podcast with Brendan Rod, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.